in our study in the book of Genesis today. As of no surprise to many of you, but we're going to continue in that very first book of the Bible. Now, if you did not grab or don't have one of those Genesis scripture journals that are in the, out in the lobby, uh, please make sure you grab one of those. Those are a gift to you. I've heard from many of you that you really enjoy taking sermon notes in those or writing prayers. So just as a reminder, if you don't have one of those Genesis scripture journals, uh, please take one of those. Now, in case you have not been with us, uh, maybe recently, uh, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14. And once again, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. The whole chapter. Now, I'll be honest, this is a strange chapter in Genesis. Really, every chapter in Genesis is a little strange. But this one is strange in the sense that we, from Genesis chapter 13 to Genesis chapter 14, we quickly find ourselves being thrown into the deep end of some kind of international war that's going on. There's all kinds of names and situations that seem to just kind of come out of nowhere. Which, isn't that a reflection of our walk with Christ? Where just when we think that we're starting to get a grasp onto maybe what God's doing and where he's going and maybe where he's calling us to, to be, situations, people arise that we did not see coming. And we are once again thrown into this posture of, God, what do you have for me now? Where do you want me to trust you? Because even when those things seem to come out of nowhere, and although we don't see maybe why God is doing that right now. We don't have to wonder if God is feeling the same way as we are. In fact, we know that God knows all things. And he knows all things that are working according to his sovereign will. And so even though these situations arise that seem random to us, they're not random to God. And the same with all of us. There's no event in your life that's random to God. It maybe seem random or unexpected to you, but not for him. But what do we do about these random events? Events that we don't see coming, but find ourselves in. Well, like Abram, like us today, we will devote ourselves to knowing that God uses everything for his ultimate good purpose. And his ultimate good purpose is always to reveal and to exalt his son. To show us more of Christ. To point us to him. That we could behold him. That we could be more in awe of him. More in wonder of him. And so in Genesis 14, my goal after studying, praying, thinking about this chapter quite a bit... My goal is for us to see Jesus in Genesis 14 in such a magnificent and marvelous way in which I believe Moses intended to, along with the very spirit in which inspired the words that we see. Because I am convinced, I am convinced of this church, that all of the Bible, really, all of the Bible is the unfolding and the exposition of Genesis 3.15. 
when we looked back and saw God make these promises to our first parents about undoing the wrong, undoing the evil that has entered in the world, the promise to do something about the fall of humanity, the promise to crush the head of an enemy, the promise to bring redemption to those who are His. Ever since Genesis 3.15, it's God has been simply expounding on that promise. And I believe we will see that again in Genesis 14 this morning. But as I normally do, and quite delight in, I want to pray one more time. Because I want to pray for you, because in order for us to rightly see Christ here, behold Him, we need God's help. And I need God's help. We can do nothing outside of Him. So will you please pray for me as I pray for you. Father, we want to come to you once again knowing that you are the God of Scripture. That you are ultimately the author of of the very words in which we will read and ponder and think about today. That all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for us. Profitable for us because it points us to you, Christ. It reminds us of our deep need and dependence on you. So God, will you just give eyes to see, ears to hear all of what you've intended this scripture to do. Father, I also pray for our kiddos next door as those teachers are leading just our youngest hearts in this building this morning through this very same text. And they, like us, would be able to walk out of here, Jesus loving you more than when we first walked in. It's only from you. All glory be to you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 14. Let me go ahead and just read the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll go back through. All right. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Gon, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cato-Lamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cato-Lamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah, Karathaim. And the Horites in their hill country of Zerar, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness... Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazaron Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Siddim. With Kedolomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Guam, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. 
Then, one who had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. As he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cadalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God Most High, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my eyes to the Lord, God Most High. Possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. Now, What in the world did we just read? Because if you're anything like me, right, the first time that we read chapter 14, you had no idea what was going on. You're like, I've never heard of these people. I don't know where these places are at. I don't know why I'm even being told all these things. Why does this matter to me as a Christian? Right? What would this have been read by the original audience or heard by the original audience? These are things that I'm asking when I read the Bible. Why is this here? Well, thankfully, I think by going slow, and whenever you have deep questions, go slow, and consider all of Scripture, I think the point of this text, this chapter, does come into focus. But let me try to break down as best I can of what we did read in those first few verses. Because essentially, we're told about four kings in verse 1. Four kings. And these four kings had some type of powerful alliance between them. And one of those kings is a man named Ketelomer. And Ketelomer had some type of rule over five kings and kingdoms that were to the south in the land of Canaan, a place that we've been looking at the last few chapters. And we're told about these five kingdoms, and one of those would sound familiar to you, the king of Sodom, right? We learned about this in the last chapter. It's a place where Abram's nephew Lot went and set up his camp. Now, we're also told that in verse 4, that for 12 years, Ketelomer had been oppressing, right, these five kings and kingdoms to the south, that he had some kind of rule over them, which would have been very common in this day. But it says on the 13th year, they said, enough is enough. We want our freedom. And they rebelled. 
we don't really know what that meant. Maybe they stopped paying taxes or stopped sending food, right? There was these famines that were going on in the, in the region. Or maybe, maybe there were statues of Cato Lemaire around, and they started tearing those things down and saying, we are our own king, kingdom, and have our own king. We don't need you, Cato Lemaire. Well, word got back to Cato Lemaire, didn't it? And he wasn't happy. And so we read that he went on this war path. He went started conquering these, these different kingdoms and these different people, these, these ancient tribes who would have had great influence. But the war path was always intended to get down south. And so we see that Cato Lemaire and basically his three king buddies that he had this alliance with went south to go fight the five kingdoms that had rebelled against him. Now this rebellion, if you look at chapter, or verse 8, reached a climax in the battle in the valley of Siddam. And we read, we're not given a whole lot of detail, but basically the, four, or the five kings lost to the four kings. They were driven out. But what does this have to do with the story of God, right? What does this have to do with the promises of God? Why is this in our Bible? There was plenty of wars going around. There was plenty of conquering happening in the near ancient world. Why are we hearing about this one? Well, I think verse 12 gives us an indication. In verse 12, we read that when Sodom was captured... A specific person was captured along with it. And who was that? Lot. Abram's nephew. His family, his kinsmen. So when Sodom got plundered, Lot was taken captive. And then we're quickly going, oh, this is why we care. This is why we care about this battle, this battle, these, these armies. And the narrative tells us that a survivor from that, that battle of Siddam somehow escaped and because Lot got captured, where did he go? He went up to see Abram. Abram. Who is referred to as the Hebrew. Which, take note, that's the first time that we are told that Abram is referred to as the Hebrew. And why that's significant is because he, Abram was then already starting to be known as a nation in some ways. A people that had a name reminding us of the promise that God made with Abram, that he would make his name great, that he would be the father of a mighty nation. Those promises were coming true already. But what does Abram do? This is really neat, church. He will not settle for his kinsmen, his family, to be taken captive. Right? He has learned the lesson the hard way that the promises made to him involve his family. And so by faith, what does he do? He's, he takes action. You know, faith sometimes is being passive and saying, God, I trust you. Sometimes faith is being active, saying, I need to step out in faith and do something because you are God and you have made promises. So he prepares for action. Abram, as the head of the family, will not let one of his own be lost 
into captivity. Remind you of anybody? Well, in verse 14, we learn just how wealthy and powerful Abram had become. It says in the text that he rounds up 318 trained men. Men that were part of his dwelling, his house, it says. Now, it does not say what they were trained in. But I think the context of why Moses highlights this is that it's likely that they were trained in fighting. This was an elite group of men. They knew how to fight. Think about it this way. If the Hebrews were like modern-day Marines, these 318 men would be like the raiders of the Marines. I know some of you know who that, what that is. Basically, it's the, the top group, the elite Ones that, if you want to send a small group to accomplish something, you would send these guys. But it wasn't that they were this elite group that Moses gives attention to, really. We'll see later on that it was these men who had the hand of the Almighty God next to them, who was working and protecting his promises. So what happens? Well, they decide to chase down these kings. And this is pretty neat, right? They decide to do it by night. They divide up this group into these, these smaller recon teams. In a very powerful way, it says that by night, they defeated the kings. They brought back all the possessions, all the people, all the women, including Lot. This must have been absolutely epic. It was a mission successful. Now, I think if the chapter 14 would have ended right there, we probably would have a lot to glean from. We could see that God was making good on his promises, continuing right to bless those who bless Abram. We could see that those who are cursing Abram, God is cursing them. We could see that God is making good on his promises to make Abram's name great. We could see all of these promises continue to be protected. Right? Because we've, we've seen over and over again these promises be threatened, whether it be famine, whether it be family strife, or even international war. God has not thwarted or is not being thwarted on his promises. He is the promise keeper. But then in verses 17 through 24, I think we have to, to take that along with everything that's been happened. Because in verses 17 through 24, we get this strange interaction after this mighty battle that the Bible speaks to in, in a couple of different ways. But let's look at this. So what happens after the battle? Well, after the return of Abram, we see that there's two kings that want to welcome Abram back after his successful mission. The first king to welcome back is king of Sodom. Somehow, he's, I guess he survived that, that battle in the Valley of Siddim. And so he, he's right there, welcoming Abram back. And, but what do we know about Sodom? Do we, what do we know about this? Is this somebody that you want to befriend? No. We learned earlier in chapter 13 
that Sodom was this city, was this kingdom that was known for it to be an enemy of God himself. That they were great sinners in opposition of God. Not somebody that you want to associate with. And I think we even see some of the character of this king. If you notice the very first words out of his mouth in verse 21 are what? Give me. Give me the person's. Give me. But then, we're also introduced to another king. A king in a kingdom that we had not heard before. Another character, a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Whom we are told is king of Salem. Now, Salem is a place that some scholars believe would later become known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We don't really know. We don't really know anything about this guy. He just kind of shows up. But we're told some very specific things about him. We're told that he is this king, but we're also told that he is a priest. A priest of God Most High. And it's his priestly nature that seems to come to the surface very quickly. Because we see Melchizedek, in verse 19, his first words are blessed. Blessed be Abram by God. This is verse 19. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Which is also the first time we've ever heard somebody use that language. Of the God of the Bible, the God of Abram is the God most high. The God that's above all gods. The king of all kings. So we're seeing that, okay, there's another worshiper of the one true God here. Melchizedek. He worships the same God as Abram. And what does this Melchizedek do after he blesses and gives thanks to the work that God has done? Well, it says that he brought out bread and wine. A celebration. And he blesses Abram, but he also blesses God. And he attributes all of the success of Abram to who? To God. Melchizedek rightly knows where ultimate glory belongs to. But what does Abram do? How does he respond to this? Well, look at verse 20. In response, Abram gives this tithe. Right? A, a tenth. That's what tithe means. A tenth of what he had. He responds to God by, work, by God's work by giving back to him some of the very resources that God has given him in the first place. Which really is what worshiping God with money is all about. It's giving back to, to God what God has entrusted to you. It all belongs to him. And I would say, in some ways, right, this kind of feels almost like a worship service, right? There's, there's bread, there's wine, right? There's the worshiping of, of God with these finances. But notice that also in verse 22, we see Abram is deeply affected by this interaction with Melchizedek. Because he even adopts the language that he hears this high priest using to describe God. He calls him the most high God himself. 
But then he also responds to Sodom. And what does he say? I have spoken. I have communed with God, and I don't want anything to do with you. You can have whatever you want. I'm not going to take a thing, because I don't want to be associated with you in any way. He does not want to commune with those who are in rebellion to him. Now, we could probably spend some more time on particularities in this text, but I want to go back to Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is this interesting figure in whom the Bible ends up spending a lot of time talking about. Even though this is the first time we're told of him, the last time we're told of him in Genesis, and really, we're only told of him one more time in the Old Testament, Psalm 110. But yet, the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, spends a lot of time going back to Melchizedek. You know, some believe that actually Melchizedek was a theophany of Jesus himself, meaning uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus visiting Abram here. Now, truthfully, I don't think that is the case, and I can share with you later why that I believe that. But what we do know, and Scripture is very clear on, is Melchizedek was this giant signpost saying, this one points to Christ. This one is supposed to point you to Jesus and who he is, and what he's done. So if you have a, a full Bible, and if you only have the Genesis Scripture Journal, I apologize. But if you have a full Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. It's going to be on page 1004 if you're using one of those black pew Bibles around the room. And this is a spot where the author of Hebrews goes back to Genesis 14 and seems to exegete its importance for a Christian today, for us. Why does this matter to us? So let me start with Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. It says, And to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author of Hebrews goes back to Genesis 14 and says, I want to highlight some things that happened there that you may have overlooked, that you may have not considered before. And so he starts by talking about the name Melchizedek. He shows us that, remember, names were really important in this day. It it signified something. Nobody was named anything arbitrarily. It was always intentional. And the author of Hebrews rightly tells us that Melchizedek means righteous and peace. So if he is a king, he is the king of righteousness and peace. That he represents both of those realities in which are desperately needed. Realities in which, church, we actually can never give ourselves. True righteousness, true peace. Which is, the, which is the point, as we will see. And furthermore, in verse 3, the author of Hebrew points out that he was without father or mother. Now, I don't know if that means that he actually didn't have a literal father or mother. But where the text goes is that the, why he makes that point is that 
Melchizedek was not a priest based off of family obligation. It wasn't because his dad was a priest, or he came from his mother's line, came from a priestlyhood there, but rather Melchizedek was a priest because he was divinely appointed by God and God alone for it. In much the same way, Jesus was divinely appointed by the Father for his priestly work. Furthermore, Hebrews tells us that the priesthood of Melchizedek reflected a priesthood that was unlike any other priesthood. You might be familiar with another priesthood that we see in Scripture, and that is the Levitical priesthood. Those men that came from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek didn't come from the tribe of Levi, did he? Levi hadn't been born yet. There was no Levitical priesthood at this point. It didn't exist. So this was before that. What's the point there? So Melchizedek was a priest divinely appointed by God himself. And it was a better priesthood. A better priesthood. Because what do priests do, church? What did, what did the priests do at this time? Well, a priest was one who stood between man and God. A priest is the one who would do the sacrifices for the sins of the people, right? And the high priest is the one on the Day of Atonement would go into the holies of holies and make a sacrifice for the sin of the people for that year. The priest was those that would stand and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But yet... Throughout the Old Testament, what do we see in that Levitical priesthood? It has to keep happening, right? That Day of Atonement has to keep happening over and over again. And why is that? Well, because the people keep sinning. So there's another sacrifice that's needed. But also, there's not a perfect sacrifice that's offered up. It was never perfect. In fact, the priest had to make sacrifice for himself before he could make a sacrifice for the people. Because the priest was sinful. He had sin in his life. So priests would come and go. There was many of them. But what is Hebrews trying to get at then? Well, Hebrews is telling us that Melchizedek was pointing us forward to Jesus, who is a better priest that came. One who was not bound by sin or human frailty. One that the Levitical priesthood could never do. Because what is the one thing that the Levitical priesthood could never accomplish? Full and final atonement for your sins. Your salvation, church. The Levitical priesthood could never accomplish it. It could never give you eternal righteousness. It could never give you eternal peace with God. Now if you jump down to verse 23, let me read this in Hebrews. Where he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, this is speaking of Jesus, church, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, 
like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Church, do you see this? Do you see that in this kind of random person of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we are quickly transported to a better high priest for a need for a priest. That sin is something real that needs to be dealt with. That sin, that rebellion against God needs to be looked at and atoned for. But the author of Hebrews is saying, Melchizedek told us that there was going to be a, a priest that would last forever a priest, the ultimate priest of God Most High. And that is Jesus' church. That he is the one who is the perfect priest to represent God and humanity because Jesus is truly God and truly man. Right? The importance of the hypostatic union, church. But yet, this God-man, Jesus, is one that would live forever. Melchizedek was a foreshadow of God sending a kingly high priest. And unlike any other priest, he didn't have to sacrifice daily for himself. And why is that, church? Because he was without sin. But he was able to offer up the perfect and a last sacrifice once and for all. And like Melchizedek, what does Melchizedek bring to Abram? To bring to God's people, it says, bread and wine. Well, the ultimate high priest also brings bread and wine, doesn't he? But the bread and wine in which Jesus brings and institutes in the Lord's Supper reminds us that this is going to be the last bread and wine that will ever need to be presented for the sacrifice and atonement of sins. Now, we remember that by participating in the Lord's Supper, but it's not as if we're asking God to go to the cross again. Jesus offered up the perfect and last sacrifice. And when Jesus, and how did he do that, by the way? How did Jesus offer up the last and perfect sacrifice? How was he that ultimate high priest? Because he brought to God the perfect, spotless Lamb of God himself and sacrificed himself. The only Lamb that was spotless and without blemish, the only Lamb that was eternal, the only Lamb that could atone for sins in past, present, and future. A last and perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus went to that cross church as the high priest offering up himself, God poured out his wrath onto that perfect, spotless lamb, didn't he? Jesus himself. But yet, when Jesus yelled out at the end, it is finished, he was speaking of that priestly duty. It has been accomplished. Your sins have been atoned for by another, but never to be needed to be atoned for again. Because the sacrifice was perfect. Jesus being and doing, church, what we could never do for ourselves. That no other priest could ever do on our behalf. But yet the high priest, the perfect priest, did it joyously for us.
never to be repeated again. That's why, church, often when you read the rest of the New Testament, and they, they remark that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, do you know why he's sitting there? Why it describes that posture? He's sitting because his priestly duty is finished. It's done. Never to be needed again. The atonement for sins has been accomplished, which is the current reality today. That's why Jesus is the perfect high priest, the priesthood forever, the one who continues to make intercession for us, such as praying on our behalf, right? Telling us about who God is, showing us on who God is. He still does that priestly work, but he does not have to do the work of atonement anymore. That is finished. Which thanks be to God for that. Because me, a sinner, I'm the worst sinner in this room, in case you haven't figured that out yet. I needed someone to atone for my sins. I could never be good enough. I could never sacrifice myself as a perfect sacrifice because I've been blemished. I've rebelled. I've sinned. But yet, Jesus, sweet Jesus, who had no sin in himself, joyously went to the cross on my behalf. We have a priest king in Jesus. The one who is able to save church. And like the name Melchizedek points to, Jesus' high priestly work and actually accomplishes that perfect righteousness, that perfect peace. The Bible says it's imputed to you now. It's given to you. Not because you earned it. You didn't. But he earned it. And he says, what is mine, I give to them. Because we couldn't earn it ourselves. And so just to be really clear, church, before we're, we're almost done. Why, why are we learning about Melchizedek in Genesis 14? Like, what are we supposed to walk away from thinking about just that one guy amidst a crazy war, right? Amidst all kinds of names and countries. Well, let's go back to what is all the Bible trying to get us at. The Bible is unashamedly trying to get you to see Jesus in new and profound ways every single time you open it. It wants you to see him. Jesus said that. All of Moses and the prophets were talking about me. Secondly, even in the midst of war, right, the midst of great accomplishment on Abram's part, right, a lot of stuff to brag about, we see God going, don't get too cocky, Abram. You need a high priest. I have provided victory for you, but you need to know that victory, ultimate victory, will belong to the high priest going on your behalf. And lastly, I think maybe more personally for us, just like Abram, right? If we find ourselves in situations and circumstances and chaos, maybe famine, strife, wars, we may not find ourselves in that right today, but there's a lot of Christians that do. We are to recognize that things of our life are not random to God. And if God cares about in the midst of chaos, still providing what you ultimately and absolutely need in relation to him, 
that's a good God. That's a good God who's not swayed by circumstances, not swayed by maybe what you and I think is important, but always goes to what he thinks is important. And so we walk out of here realizing that God has sent the high priest, right? That better Melchizedek, the one whose priesthood would last forever. And he has now welcomed us to his table. We get to participate of that bread and wine in which Jesus brought at the Lord's Supper, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. What a gift that is, church. And so what are we going to do? Well, I think we respond in a way that Abram responded to this moment. And that's being really, really thankful for God in our communion with him. And so we're going to walk out of here knowing that the victory belongs to God himself. But the ultimate victory against sin also belongs to God himself. So that second painting in the hallway, the one that just has a figure looking out into the distance, that's Melchizedek. But you also notice the cross because it's pointing to the greater Melchizedek, the true high priest that we have in Christ. And I invite us all to turn to him. Maybe you've done that. You've been following Christ for a long time. Praise God for that. I hope that you're reminded of the sweetness of who Jesus is and what he has done. But maybe you're not quite sure where you're at. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. May I encourage you that what you need is a great high priest. What you need is not better principles to have a better life, but you need someone who can show you who God is. Someone that can bring you into his presence. And the only person that can do that, church, is Jesus. And I would invite for you to turn from your sin and to trust in him. Let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us. Father, as we end our time in this word today, I am delighted in the fact that that even from the very beginning, you've always been working your perfect plan out. That even in the earliest days of what's recorded in Scripture, you had a plan to save a people. You had a plan to bring someone like Melchizedek, but a better Melchizedek. Your own son, Jesus, Father. Whom did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so God, we want to walk out of here today believing that more, rejoicing in that more, upholding you more, and enjoying all of what has been given to us through him. Because it really is from him and through him and to him belong all things. So Lord, we, we love you. We need you. We're thankful for you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church. Well, let's go ahead and respond. Mm-hmm.